If you're interested in mentorship for getting sober and thriving in sobriety, book a free call with Jake Yoder, founder of the Natural Highs Coaching Program, which uses mindfulness and holistic health to help you cultivate inner peace and find purpose in your sober life. Jake has been on a recovery and spiritual growth journey for nine years and has helped hundreds of people all over the world with mindset and lifestyle shifts to reach a new level of well-being and sobriety. On the call, Jake will help you explore the root causes of the suffering that led to addiction and provide you insights and resources to help you feel great naturally in sober life. The main thing I tell myself is that no matter how difficult things may be in the moment, no matter how overwhelmed I might be feeling, is that as long as I make the next right choice, right? The next right choice over the next five minutes or 10 minutes or an hour, then I'm going to be okay. Because oftentimes I find that, you know, if I allow myself to start ruminating on things that might happen later on today or tomorrow or the next day or next week or next month, then things become so overwhelming. And that just seems like it's too much to handle. And that's when my addictive brain wants to really try to take over. Right. So if I just stay in the moment, tell myself, just get through the next five minutes, make the next right choice. And I continue to do that over the course of a day and I make it through that day. Chances are I'm going to be just fine. You guys have a blessed day. It was that step-by-step incremental thing, but also just realizing that I didn't have to do it or keep on doing it just because initially it was the right next step for me. It was what I wanted at the time. In other words, I remember saying to my husband, they can't make me do it. Like, you know, they don't own me, right? I'm allowed to change my mind. I'm allowed to reassess. I'm allowed to make a new decision. And so that permission to make a new decision was uh, an important part. Sobriety is scary. That's why Untapped Keg explores different perspectives of sobriety and mental health so that you know you are not alone. Hopefully, you can find something you can implement into your own life. Sobriety and mental health are topics that often are uncomfortable and complex. We do not shy away from any conversation. But you should know we try to be respectful. But there's always room to learn and grow. Everyone is welcome here, as you are, and you will be respected. We are not medical professionals and do not give medical advice. Please seek medical care if you need it. Now let's get to the show. All right. Uh, Ready? Ready. Okay, perfect. Hey, you. Thank you for tapping into some Untapped Keg podcast where we talk about different perspectives and sobriety, mental health, because here we believe there's only one right way to sobriety. That's the way that works for you. I'm your host, RJ Zimmerman, and I have the pleasure of having Mary Beth O'Connor on the show with me this week. Mary Beth has been sober from a meth use disorder since 1994. She also is in recovery from abuse and trauma. Her history and her recovery are chronicled in her memoir, From Junkie to Judge, One Woman's Triumph Over Trauma and Addiction. Mary Beth is a director, secretary, and founding investor for She Recovers Foundation. She is also a director for Life Ring Secular Recovery. She regularly speaks on behalf of these organizations and about multiple secular paths to recovery. Mary Beth also has had opinion pieces published including in the Wall Street Journal. Professionally, six years into recovery, Mary Beth attended Berkeley Law. She worked at a large firm, then litigated class actions for the federal government. In 2014, she was appointed a federal administrative law judge, from which position she retired early in 2020. How are you doing, Mary Beth? Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm doing great. Thank you. That's awesome. So um, could you give us a little bit of an introduction into um, kind of where you came from and started your journey to recovery? Yeah. So, I mean, I do like to talk about what led me to start using it because that's what, you know, that's part of the story. And I do that in the book as well, because I think it's important to see it wasn't out of the blue. It actually wasn't a surprise. Um, But 
my mother was not really bonded to me. There was no real connection. She wasn't paying any attention. Uh, she was really distant and she could be violent at times, but more closer to the normal range, maybe a little on the high end, but not ridiculously so. Um, but when I was nine, we moved in with my stepfather who was violent to her. He was verbally, emotionally, physically, and sexually violent to me. And it was just a household where, you know, it wasn't like it was every day, but you just never knew. You never knew when it was going to happen. You never knew what could potentially trigger it. It was just out of your control. And so that created a lot of stress and strain. Um, and so when I first got exposed to my first drug, which was alcohol, and um, for those people who were around in the 70s, it was Boone's Farm, Strawberry Hill Wine, which was like a common introductory drink in my day. <laughs> we uh, we had the Boone's Farm as well in my uh, small town and... You're never too young to try there. So <laughs> that's right. That's right. It's sweet and it goes down. And and I had a very positive, you know, reaction to it. I was mm -hmm. my girlfriend. It was my girlfriend and I. And, you know, I just remember like a giggly afternoon and feeling light in a way that I hadn't felt maybe ever or definitely not in many years. And just feeling sort of connected with her and engaged with her in a in a way I hadn't had for a while. And so pretty much right away, I was pursuing alcohol. I tried, you know, to get it whenever I could. I actually, I, I always, I was tall. So I always looked older and I hung out with older kids and the drinking age in New Jersey was 18. And so I had fairly easy access at a pretty young age. And plus I would steal beers from my stepfather. We all stole alcohol from our parents, um, but it was really it wasn't just that I was just doing it. It was that I was thinking about it. Like, when's the next time? When's my next opportunity? What this weekend, where could I go and get some, you know? And, mm -hmm. and even if I was going somewhere, well, maybe I should have a beer in secret before I leave. So I have a head start, you know, all of that thinking was really fast. You know, it was really from the beginning. Um, and then I also, I moved on to other drugs very early too. I moved on to pot, pills. I did a lot of acid my sophomore year of high school and then when I was 16, I found what became my drug of choice, which was methamphetamine. And I was shooting up meth at 17 years old and in full bore addiction when I graduated high school. So it was a pretty fast escalation and it was a pretty um, miserable place at, at that very young age. Um, and go ahead. Yes. I was just going to say, um, how long were you in your active addiction before you um, got help? So I actually went to college, I um, went to Berkeley, and for three and a half years of college, I did better. So I had some modicum level of control. I didn't use meth that much, which helped me use more moderately. I used a lot of alcohol, mostly on the weekends. Sometimes Coke would be around or other drugs, but I it was more contained than it had been the last three years of high school. But I I had this really um, life-threatening multi-assailant rape in college, and then I moved in with a violent boyfriend, and that was it. I, I just couldn't hang on anymore, and I turned back to meth my January of my senior year, and I used for another 10 years. I did not go into rehab until I was 32 years old. So it was a pretty long haul, using from 12 to 32, and pretty much out of control at least from 16 to 32. So it was a, it was a long haul. Um, what was the moment? Did you have help to get you started to your recovery? You said you went to rehab. Um, what did it look like leading up to that? Um, so, I mean, I had really, I had really destroyed everything, almost lost everything. My professionally, I, I say I worked my way down the corporate ladder <laughs> because I couldn't hold a job because I was using all the time. And so every job was less money and less responsibility. And I held it for less time. My body was, I was physically having problems by 32. I was starting to have some physical breakdowns and that was problematic. I was, you know, just emotionally debilitated. I was exhausted, you know, at the deepest, deepest level of exhaustion. I really felt hopeless. I saw no way out. And my partner who I've been with like 
11 or 12 years at that point, he was done with me. Like, you know, I was, I was going to have to leave soon. Like that was almost over. And so all of those in combination really made me sort of throw out as the last resort. Well, you know, what if I go to rehab, you know, maybe will you, will you not throw me out today if I go to rehab? And so that, so that's what I did. I went to a a women's program and it was a long-term program, minimum 90 days. And I ended up staying for five months. So that was the beginning. That was the beginning of my recovery, really. And that was 1993. I went in to rehab. I used twice in rehab once when I got home. So my sobriety date is January 94. Well, congratulations on the long-term recovery. Um, when you, what, what was the, when you finally hit that and you're going through early sobriety, like you start to, you feel the physical and honestly the mental like clarity and you start to feel better, but what point did you hit where you're like, um, maybe I need to do something a little bit more? Was there that point where you went from, okay, now I'm kind of living, but what is there something on the other side of that? Yeah, you know, I, I started calling it big R recovery, you know, I, and I will say, first of all, that, <laughs> that my recovery for substance use disorder, it was actually a challenge because yeah. I was in a 12 step house and I didn't know I was going to a 12 step house and that's not a good fit for me. And so and they swore that that's all there was. There was no other option. And so really early on at like day two, I had to figure out what to do about how to handle my approach to recovery because they were telling me to do something I couldn't do. And so I really had to decide what, you know, what am I going to do here? And it was a problem because I didn't trust my own judgment because I, you know, I knew I had been making a lot of bad decisions and these are the experts and they're telling me it's the only option, but I know it won't work. And so I really had to sort of take control of what I was, how I was going to approach recovery very early on. And so I decided to just, to keep my ears and my mind open and just grab the ideas I thought would be useful and just ignore everything else. And that actually turned out to be a good foundation for the big R recovery side. Because in a way, what I was really doing was, um, it wasn't that I wasn't listening or that I was saying, you know, I'm going to do it all on my own. I'm going to, you know, create this from scratch. I and mean, when I got home, I did research at the library, no Google in 94. And I found like Women for Sobriety and Rational Recovery that's now smart and SOS that's basically now life ring. And I combined all the ideas. And so I was doing like a, you know, an analysis of what are the ideas that are being presented to me? What, which of those do I think will help or help me at this moment? Um, and then implementing them. And that, that helped me handle other areas of my life later, because I was sort of teaching myself that I could not, I could trust myself not to make perfect decisions, but to make overall good decisions in my own self-interest and to figure out how to move myself in a positive direction. And so that was really the approach that I ended up using, like dealing with my trauma history, dealing with my professional decisions, pretty much dealing with all my choices. It just, it, it made me feel more confident and more competent to sort of be in charge of my own life and to, and to decide what, how am I going to move forward? What's the right next step for me? Um, I'm just taking, taking a second to digest that because, you know, that's really important to set yourself up in a way that you have that success. Like you're, you're making some headway in some research and you're like, Oh, this one might work that, you know, and like the the hope that builds up there. Um, but also researching like that must be, must've been a strength that you had that you went back to. So you couldn't trust yourself to make the decisions, but the research is going to help you do that. Um, Was there something that helped you with like the research, making that into a strength before all of this? Well, I will say that I did think of my recovery about who I had been before, even though before I was pretty young. But really, mm-hmm. who had I been before the trauma? Who had I been before the the drug use? And and I thought about it, and I had always been, you know, considered smart in school. I was academically inclined. I was always verbal. I was always outgoing. And I and I thought, you know, these are sort of 
I've lost, I had lost my connection to those parts of myself, but they were, they still must be in there, you know? And I thought if I can reconnect to those sort of inherent strengths that I had initially, those characteristics will help me move forward. And so I did think about that, trying to, trying to get that connection back to sort of my original self. And you're right. Things like, you know, reading and doing research and analyzing was something that I was just sort of naturally had a, a proclivity toward. And it and it did help me. It helped me when I approached all the areas of my recovery, including substance use. So that was part of it, was thinking about who was I really and how can I get her back, the pieces of her back that will help me move forward. I love I love all the dots that we're connecting here too, because I mean, there's multiple times in, I know my life too, like I've had to look back, okay, who's, who's RJ? Who was RJ? Like, when was the time I was proud of myself? Like I wanted to be this person and then to take that and try to make it new for myself. Like it, it can be done. And I've done it three different times in sobriety. So, um, just so people are out there, if you need a little bit of hope and a little bit of a boost, it is possible. Um, I, you know, when you're making these strides, um, and you're getting into the big R recovery, um, what was it that was calling to you to like pursue law school and become a lawyer? Like what inside was it that you wanted to, um, help yourself fulfill? Well, I will say that it's not like the day I went into rehab, I thought I was going to ever become a judge. It wasn't on my list of things to do. Yeah. Um, but it was really about uh, the law school is a little complicated. I'll tell you that in a second. But it, but really, it was about the process of what's the right next step for me. So like professionally, I had yes. this horrible, choppy resume. I was embarrassed to think about interviewing with that resume, especially with my Berkeley education. It was it was, you know, painful. Um, but I had to, I faced reality and luckily I had the option. I just when I got out of rehab, I worked part time, low level um, temporary admin job because that's all I was ready for. I was 32 years old and I had never in my life gotten up and gone to work every day and stayed like the whole day that I was supposed to be there and done a good job and done it the next day and the next day. I had never done it at 32. So I really sort of needed to be um, realistic with myself about what I was actually ready for instead of thinking, oh, well, I've got this fancy degree. I should be able to have this, you know, leap forward. I wasn't ready to do it. And I did give myself permission to start where I was at. And so that was really what it was about. It was about, okay, well, then what's the right next job? And how do I get myself prepared to qualify for that right next job? And what's the job after that? And so I went from that part-time temp job to a mid-level permanent admin job. And then my third job was a supervisory job at a larger company. And then I realized after doing that for a couple of years that I didn't want my boss's job or my boss's boss's job. So I'm not in the right place. And um, and I had I had actually gone to law school right out of college. But because of my drug addiction, which, remember, had picked up in January of my senior year, yeah. I wasn't able to do it. I mean, I had gotten into Berkeley Law then and I. I had to withdraw because of my drug addiction. I I couldn't handle it. I wasn't able to do it. And that was a acute pain to have had something like that in my hands and I knew I lost it because of my substance use disorder. I, it wasn't it was clear that's what it was. I didn't tell them that. Right. <laughs> that's what it was. And so when I realized I wasn't in the right place, I started thinking about law school again. Well, maybe, you know, I should look at going back. But again, it was that that fear of getting rejected because of what had happened the first time or having to explain myself. And it was just hard to even take the risk, hard to even make the effort. Um, but in the end, I did decide to go through the process. I took the law school admission test again and all of that. And Berkeley did not take me back, but Hastings in San Francisco, which is like, a, it's a good law school. It's not a top 10 like Berkeley, but it's a very good school. They took me. And then I was number three in my class of 400. And then Berkeley took me back. And so then I ended up graduating from Berkeley. So that's the, the long story of, of how I went, you know, from 32 getting sober to eventually becoming a lawyer. Um, and, and it was, I, I think it's a good 
part, part of it is I like to focus on the time frame, right? I went to law school at six years sober, six and a half, actually, right? Not right away. I became a judge at 20 years sober, you know, 20 years. Um, but it was, be- but I got there through that next step, next step, next step. So it wasn't about, I always, this was my dream from the beginning of my recovery. It's, I don't, I don't think, you know, in your early recovery, what you're going to want in 20 years or even five, it's really about what yeah. can I do for my next step? And if you focus on the right next step, then eventually you'll go all kinds of places that you can't really even imagine. And that's why I like to talk about, you know, like you called it the big R recovery. And like, I've really been calling it like thriving in your sobriety, but it's, I spent eight, seven, eight years just surviving. Like what's the next right step? Like, you know, very early it's get to tomorrow, get to next month, get to, you know, eventually it gets bigger, but sooner or later you get to look at the bigger picture. And what happened to me is I got caught in autopilot. I was like, okay, I'm doing everything I'm supposed to do. I have a really good job. I enjoy doing the job, but I don't necessarily enjoy a lot of the people that I work with, what, you know, I have a family, but I'm not doing anything. I'm just kind of being, and I was kind of waiting for life to come to me. And then I recently have changed it to, no, I'm going to go live life. Like, let's do this. Let's get it. And I think that a lot of times in sobriety, we get caught in that trap of, well, I'm not drinking. I have good things around me. Like, I'm not going to really do that because there's going to be alcohol involved or there could be a chance of a different, you know, drug being there or, you know, whatever it is that you are really trying to remove from your life. But there's so much more to life, like finding your joy and finding your passion, like you wanting to fulfill finishing law school eventually. Like that was, that was a pull that was so finding out that next right step that's such a great way because that way you don't get stuck. Like I don't have really anything to do. I just have everything that I kind of thought of. So I don't know where to look next. Um, go ahead. Oh, the other side of that I was going to say is that, um, you know, the professional right next step was actually, it's nice. I was, I was a judge, like, you know, I'm proud of that. It's not that I want to um, minimize it, but the truth is that, for me, the harder recovery to even get there was about the trauma. And so I actually recovered more easily from this. I don't mean to say it was easy, but it was faster. Yeah. Um, it took less time for me to get my substance use disorder recovery stabilized than it did to get my PTSD that I didn't know I have and my severe anxiety that I didn't know I have. So in the beginning, I was doing the right next step, but I wasn't actually enjoying it or feeling as proud of it as I should have because I was in such a state of high anxiety. And it took me a long time to be able to get that under control to the point that I could actually enjoy my life in the way that I should have been enjoying it the whole time. That's, that's the truth. That right there is the capital T truth. I mean, same thing. I never, never looked into why did alcohol take me the way that it did? Like, why was my life all of a sudden? And part of it is what you kind of said earlier, the hypervigilance that you're in, alcohol removes that. Now all of a sudden your mind stops. Like, and I have ADHD and I have some other stuff. And <clears throat> the, the cross diagnoses that really do exist between substance use, which really is a symptom and mental health, like, it's real. And then the feeling of your emotions, but like the actual feeling and it, it takes a long time to process all of it um, and start to enjoy the little things like you're talking about when, when in your recovery, did you start to, did you go to, if you don't mind talking about it, therapy or um, you know, what was it that kind of was your catalyst to be able to do that too? Um, so I, I mean, my husband, and I did couples counseling, which is sort of a separate side, but I also, for my, for my trauma, I did, uh, individual therapy. And then after, I think around three years of that, I went into a group that was for women with trauma histories. And oh my gosh, that was so enlightening to me. Like it was amazing what I learned there. I, I had always known that my 
addiction was related to the trauma. Um, and I knew and I remembered all the big events of the trauma, but I didn't until I was in that women's um, therapy group. I didn't really appreciate all the ways that the trauma had impacted me. There were behaviors and ways of thinking that I had that I thought were just inherently me or inherently correct or accurate and proportional. And then when I was with the other women, I realized, no, that's a trauma response. Like that is not a healthy way to look at it or to be that anxious about every little small thing or obsessed. I could get into real obsession. God forbid my boss should say, you know, Mary Beth, can we talk later? I mean, you know, oh my God, you know, it was horrible. There were times where I literally left myself like 17 voicemails justifying whatever I thought I may have done imperfectly. And I would get in the morning and listen to them. And it's it was nothing to do with reality, nothing to do with reality. So yeah, I did individual group and I did medication for a while. Um, at first they tried different meds and they didn't help, but eventually, uh, after a break of trying, I went on a medication for something else <laughs> and it's, it's, it's not primarily an anxiety drug, but it's secondarily. And, um, and that had a significant improvement. I had a significant improvement with the meds. I had already improved probably maybe a third of the way there. And with mm -hmm. the meds within a month, I, I just gained like another 10 or 20% improvement and it increased. And then eventually I went off the meds. I think it was on three and a half years. Um, so I did all of those things and a lot of, you know, thinking and talking. And, and I also had to deal with a lot of, um, there were other areas I had to address. Like I really had some behavioral problems, you know, like my interpersonal skills were crap. You know, I mean, there was just a, a lot of things that I needed to work on, but for the, for the trauma, it was, I don't think I could have possibly done it without the therapy. I struggled even with the therapy to really understand, even when I knew, even when I finally was able to see that my thinking was my belief system, my negative expectation, for me, it was always one mistake and the world is going to explode in my face. Like, that's how I felt. I still struggle with it to a degree. Yeah. But it took me a long time to even appreciate that that was a problem or that 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 was that my perception was not accurate. It took me a long time to understand that my perception was not proportional to the risk, was not accurate assessment of what was happening. And so it was a long, slow process. And even now I say I'm mostly recovered from that because it still happens, but it's less, much, much, much less frequent. Um, it's less intense and it doesn't last like for days or weeks. It'll last maybe for a few hours or at most two days. And so it's much, much, much better. But it took a long time. I mean, it really took a long time. I would say probably it took 10 years until I was even like 75% better. It took a long time. And I mean, that's, you know, it's a lot to unpack when that's your life. Uh, that's the... And that's the thing about it too. When you've been living that way for so long that you don't know any different, how do you know if something feels right, continue to do it? Like it's easy to slip back, but it's, it's more than that too. It's just, uh, I'm really glad you're open to talk about it. So like, I've been in therapy for three years. Um, and like, I have two therapists right now. Um, and that, you know, they help a lot, but it's also, like you said, finding that community. So, putting yourself in places with people who are like-minded and growing and healing and have similar experiences that you can hear when you hear somebody else talking about something that you honestly can relate to in a, at a very personal level. Like it's almost like you're hearing yourself talk and then you can think things through and it from a different perspective, it just shows you you're looking at the same problem but what you all, all of a sudden realize is, oh, I need to look at it from this side and then I can see the solution. And that's kind of what it, at least to me, it feels like, like I'm a huge advocate for um, finding a community. I'm a huge advocate for whatever works for you. Try it all, throw it at the wall, see what, see what works. Um, please. Yeah. Try and, the, and the other thing uh, is that what you need can change over time, right? Yes. Like, I don't know if I would have been able to handle the group in the beginning. Mm -hmm. um, I, I remember very specifically one time the therapist asked us in the group, she, what, what did we need right now? And they had answers. And I was shocked. Like, what do you mean need? You're not supposed to need things because you, you won't get, you're not going to get them, you know? And yeah. so the, even the fact that they had answers sort of 
brought to my attention that my thinking about that was so skewed. I, I had already long ago given up the right to have any needs. And it was really, it was really before even the abuse from my stepfather that was rooted in my mother, not being bonded to me and not being connected. So it was, it was things like that. It's really can be an eye opener sometimes when you see how others um, respond to questions or what they put into the mix of the conversation that you hadn't thought about, or they say it in a way that you hadn't considered. It's, it, I found it very, very helpful. And the other thing that helped when you talk about community was developing real friendships, right? I mean, when you're in the middle of using, I had a couple relationships that were real, you know, that mm-hmm. were real friendships, but most of them aren't. And even the ones that are, I mean, it wasn't like I could I couldn't always be there when needed or respond or even notice someone else's pain or, you know, or remember to check in and see how they're doing because their grandfather died or whatever it might be. And so part of the healing for me was being on a different level with my friends, being reliable as a friend. I mean, on in the simple things, like if it was your birthday party and I said I was going to be there, I would show up with a gift and I would behave appropriately. Like that was all new, <laughs> right? That was yeah. all new. But it was all it's also about um the connection being stronger and you know multi-layered in a way that it's really nearly impossible to get when you're in the middle of your uh, substance use disorder. So it's all of those things sort of happening at the same time. And and I, I really I don't want to scare anyone with my 10 year comment because it's always incrementally better. It's not a light switch like, oh, at this point in time, I went from zero to 50. No, it's five, 10, 15. You know, it's you're, you're, it's that gradual improvement process, um, which I actually had to force myself to notice because I was always thinking negative or I was always I was always hyper aware of what I didn't have or what I had lost or my imperfections, whatever mistakes I had made. And so I actually had to develop a technique where I forced myself to sort of pause and look backward and see my progress because it was the only way I could do it. I just I wouldn't notice my progress if I didn't actually force myself to stand in place for a second and think, well, how far have you come in the last year or the last two years, you know, and really see the upward um, trend, which helped me feel a little calmer that I'm, I am improving and there's no indication I've sort of like peaked out on my improvement curve. You know, I'm still getting better. Um, all of those different techniques I found really helpful. I've been, uh, so I've been working on my mind. I've always been very, um, very easy to talk to myself and identify things to work on. Part of that is the negative, right? I'm very good at identifying the negative and what needs to be worked on. The positive, same thing. Uh, you know, I stay away from that. I'm supposed to do that. It's supposed to be that way, right? Um, I really, so I, I have this mind that I've been working on and now I'm working on my body like that, feeling the sensations, feeling the feelings, knowing where they originate at. That's probably this. Okay, what happened? that could cause this, but I've been doing like spiritual work too. And you know, the holistic mind, body, soul kind of a thing. And I sometimes get, because I've made so much progress the past year that I'm worried if I don't feel progress, even in one day, this has happened so many times over the past couple of months, even one day, I don't feel like I'm making forward progress. I'm feeling like I'm slipping into who I was three years ago. And that scares me. And I know exactly what you're talking about with having to pause. Look where you are. Because not every day feels like you're making, you know, those 10 steps that you're ahead of where you were. But you look back and you're like, oh, I'm way further than I thought I was. Like, I would never have done this. One important step that like I've done is self-care. Um, do you practice self-care? I, I, you know, I've never been good with things like meditation. Um, but I think for me, a part of the self-care is about creating a life without, um, with minimal chaos. Right. So, yeah. so it's, it's really about, first of all, I don't create chaos the way that I used to, even in my early recovery, I was creating chaos and didn't realize that I was creating it. But I've also, um, 
I've, I've also in my relationships, you know, eliminated to the degree possible people that are going to drag me into unnecessary turmoil. I had to really put a strong boundary around my relationship with my mother um, because of that. She really she would just she just she liked up people and she liked to she liked to engage if if i didn't emotionally engage with her in that chaos you know she just i don't know somehow she felt like i wasn't paying attention or that she was losing something and so um i had to i had to develop that boundary and so part of it is really has really been the biggest self care thing i would say is making my life calmer and more um, you know, more peaceful and sure life happens, but at least it's only the things that are unavoidable versus things that are being dragged into the mix for no purpose, good purpose. whatsoever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's setting boundaries is like, you know, that's the number one that's going to help speed a lot of things along. And the first, I don't know, five, six times that I set a boundary, I was like, I cannot believe I'm doing this. This person is going to not talk to me anymore and they're going to hate me. And, but like, that's that people pleasing the cycle that you get into. So like hearing that you did that, like that's, and it's, it's hard. It still is hard. Like, come on. Um, when you're trying to create more calm and remove the chaos, um, what did you find kind of was something that helped you with that? So like for me, I still have like little messes, but like if I clean up the rooms that I see most often in the house, it creates more of some calm. Um, is there something similar for you that helps? Well, I, I will say that what, what comes to mind, because I think it was the biggest thing was for me, the place that I had um, the least success with boundaries was at work. And so I was oh, yes. always someone who, you know, I worked like the most hours or close to the most. When I went to the big law firm after law school, I, I was like number three in hours out of like 80 litigation attorneys or something my first year. I mean, I just always worked to excess. And so I that getting that under control was a process for me. So I was at the firm um, and I had... I think I was there around three and a half years and my best friend who had, she died of a heroin overdose. Um, and that really caused me to reevaluate where I was. Going back to law school was emotionally important to me. I mean, I, it was such a joy to have gotten that back and then to have, I had a prestigious job and that, you know, I come from a blue collar family. My family doesn't have any money. And this was like, you know, a top tier job out of law school, but I was, they, they owned my time. So I was missing events. My husband started calling my girlfriend, his second wife, because she's she, every time we had a theater ticket or we we're planning to go somewhere, I couldn't go and she would go. And so when my friend died, I really reevaluated it. It was, am I, yes, I, um, I found satisfaction in getting this, these achievements, but now they're taking away from the rest of my life. And so what, what are my priorities? What are my priorities at this point in my life? Do I want to continue on this path or do I want to scale back? And so that's when I left the private practice to go to the government job because it was a more balanced work-life balance was better. Of course, I ended up taking on these major cases. And for a government attorney, I worked more out, you know, long hours, although less than in private practice. Um, and then when I became a judge, it actually was more predictable schedule. So that was helpful. Um, but it was really that process of thinking about where do I want to spend my time? What are what what are my choices? What are my what do I really value now at this point in my life? You know, what are what do I want to do on a day to day basis besides work? And how do I think I can get there? Because I still wanted the intellectual challenge of a job. I still wanted, you know, I like to be engaged. I like to I like the work. I just didn't like the, the hours and the lifestyle. And so that was a sort of a, a kicking back process to, okay, the next job was a little bit better and the next job was better than that. Um, and so it was that, it was that step by step incremental thing, but also just realizing that I didn't have to do it or keep on doing it just because initially it was 
the right next step for me was what I wanted at the time. In other words, I remember saying to my husband, they can't make me do it. Like, you know, they don't own me, right? I'm allowed to change my mind. I'm allowed to reassess. I'm allowed to make a new decision. And so that permission to make a new decision was uh, an important part. Giving yourself permission to make a decision. That's something we don't think about. It's something that you 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 say, and it's like, well, yeah, but it, also in the moment, no, we don't say that to ourselves, and that's that's important. Like, you know, just like reevaluating. Okay, what's my next best step here? And you know, that's it's so important to. Okay, I feel I feel something inside is missing. I feel something. What is? Let's evaluate that and let's look at where that stems from. Where can I go with that? And that's that's so important to continue throughout your entire life to to do. Yeah. Wow. And and the other reality is sometimes what we think we want when we get it, it actually isn't really what we thought it was going to be. It's really hard to have, it doesn't mean you made a mistake necessarily. It's hard to um, it's really impossible to know, for example, with a job, what it's going to be like on a day-to-day basis until mm-hmm. you're in there and you do it, right? And so sometimes I think people get trapped in, well, this is what I wanted. you know. Well, okay, but maybe it isn't what you thought. And also maybe it's two years later and you don't want it anymore. And whatever that decision is, relationships, financial, all of those things, it is important to continue to reevaluate everything on a regular basis. It's true in real recovery too, trauma recovery, substance use recovery. What we need in the beginning or what works in the beginning, a year later, that may not be serving us anymore. And we need to do an analysis and figure out, well, okay, that's that. I found that helpful uh, for the first six months, but now I'm actually finding it to be a bit of a negative. So give yourself permission, stop doing it, do something else instead. It's not like these things are, you know, tattoos that you can't get rid of. You know, you can change your mind and you sh- normally making a new decision or needing a different, a change, a different approach, that's part of growing. So it's part of the natural process, even though sometimes we don't give ourselves the, um, the permission to do it. That's beautiful. It, it really is. And it's, it's the, those things that, um, really are deep down. And like you said, like you get that job, and you're like, well, this isn't fulfilling. This is what I wanted. Well, like, I know myself, I was like, okay, if I get this, I'm going to be happy. If I get this, I'm going to be fulfilled. That's not a mindset that really should be put into a goal that if I get it, it's going to cure everything, right? Um, it's not, <laughs> if I if I get sober, I'm going to love myself. And well, I didn't know that that's what I was saying, but and to have a family, like that's what I'm going to do. Like that's, that's what I put on it. And that worked for a long time. Um, but it just, it doesn't carry through. And so like when you're being honest with yourself, truly honest with yourself, that's when you can make these big changes that you make. So you write a, a book about your memoirs, which, um, you know, they, from junkie to judge, one woman's triumph over trauma and addiction. What, what were you looking at where you're like, you know, people can benefit from this. I can help people with my story. Where did that start? So part of it was that when I was appointed a judge, it was actually a time of reflection, right? How how actually did I do this? I was, a, I was shooting meth at 17 years old, and now I'm a judge. And so it was just sort of a natural point to really think about my history and, and how I had gotten from A to B to C. Um, and then I really thought that my story might be useful in part because I did do recovery the sec- the secular way, but also I sort of created an individualized plan, which is a little bit more discussed now, but it wasn't then. And still, there's not a lot of good examples, especially in memoir. Mem- most memoirs are 12-step people, which I-, I have no concerns with 12 steps when it's a good fit, but I thought the way I approached it was a little different, but also I wanted to talk about the trauma side of the recovery because I felt like a lot of, you know, memoirs don't do that. It's all about their substance use disorder. And for me, it was both. And so it was really thinking about that if I could be open about my recovery and say, you know, I went from, from there to here, like the, like the, the title junkie to judge. I chose those words on purpose because I really feel like there's a, 
a hierarchy in um, in society in general's mind about substance use disorder. Right? It's better to be addicted to alcohol than to meth. It's better to pop pills than to shoot up. And I was an IV meth addict. And sometimes when you see shows on TV, it's as if it's hopeless for people like that, you know, that they yeah. have no, there's no chance for them. They they can't recover. And, and so partly I wanted to say I was her, you know, I was her, I did recover. I did manage to um, get my life under control and progress. And then judge just has that positive social resonance. And so it's kind of a nice arc in just a couple words. And so that's why I did it. But I also included the triumph part because I do view it as a, you know, as a success, as an accomplishment and the addiction and the trauma. So it was all of those. I wanted to stand up in a way where I think not everybody can because they have cons- legitimate concerns about professional consequences. And I just thought that that unusual story might capture attention and give me a way and and in to talk about um, multiple paths to recovery, the connection between trauma and substance use disorder and all those other things. That's it's amazing how vulnerable you are. I mean, just putting all this out there, like it's hard. It is very hard to talk about things. And especially when you talk about specific people and that is powerful. Like you're allowing people to step into their power, which is what you did like to go from that recovery, but not just that, like to really set yourself up so you can, you know, thrive and have something that you enjoy and give yourself permission to live, like change things around. That is, it's, it's important for people to see these stories and for them to be absolute truths too. Right. And that's, that is, uh, I give you so many props for that. And I'm glad you're proud of yourself because you deserve to be, you should be like, you are worth to be proud of yourself. And um, that's, that's fantastic. That on its own too, through everything you've been through, that is an incredible achievement. Um, so I want to give you, give you props for that. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) It's, it's little things that we look over that are sometimes the things that fill us up the most inside that I'm starting to realize. And, um, that is one of them and, uh, it's fantastic. So on that note, Mary Beth, as we're wrapping this up, what is, what is one thing you want to leave with people who listen to this episode? I mean, partly I do um, like to emphasize all the aspects of my story as um, as an example of hope, right? I mean, I had a mother I wasn't bonded with. I was an abused child, physically, sexually. I had two multi-assailant rapes and other sexual assaults. And I was and I was basically a drug addict for 16 years and I got well. And so for me, it's really about um, trying to let people know that no matter how many challenges they have or how many ways they're broken, it doesn't mean that they can't find a path forward and that they can't find recovery and a happy life. It's not going to be an overnight process, but it is a, a possible outcome. If you, you know, find, find, find enough hope to seek out the help to get you started down that positive path. I mean, that's sort of what it is. If my story just gives someone a, just enough hope to get them to take the first steps to their own recovery from whatever it may be, then I will feel like I've been of value, you know? So that, that's really, that's really part of the focus. That's a great message. I mean, you know, just what you're doing with the founding investor for she recovers and director of a, of a, the secular recovery, which I just, heard somebody. So like I'm going through coaching certification. I heard somebody talk about that, um, tonight. So people are using it and it's helping and like, they're looking to pay it back. That is a lot. And then you put your entire story out there to hope for people to have some hope to cling on to. Like, um, I'm so happy to hear it. Where, where can people pick the book up? Because it's a story that you should read. What, where, where should people pick this book up? So it's available on Amazon and all the usual sites. And so, uh, you know, please do order that. That would be great. I think I, I do. 
I do go into some detail about the recovery process. I don't just sort of, you know, I went to a couple meetings and everything was great. About 30% of the book is the recovery part of the story. And so I think it um, it can be a way to see an example of how someone did, did the recovery in a different way than the 12 steps, if that's what you're looking for, but also that combo trauma and substance use recovery. So yeah, Amazon and all the usual places it's available. And if people want to keep up with you, where can they follow you? So I'm on Twitter at Mary Beth O underscore. And my website is junkietojudge.com. And I have some um, some information there, like my op-ed in the Wall Street Journal is there. But also, if you want to reach out to me, you can send me a message through my website. And I always answer messages. So feel free. That's awesome. Yeah, like a person who answers the messages. That's, <laughs> that's me too. So, um, you know, this is... This has been a really great conversation and it, having conversations with people like you who are open and vulnerable and willing to explore life after sobriety, right? And that is, it fills me up and I know that people are going to benefit from this and that's great. And so, you know, to help honor like the story that you put out there, um, if you go to untap.com slash community and you leave a post on there and tell me you would like a copy of Mary Beth's book. I will buy it and send it to you. Um, I'll do it for five books. So five people go to untappedkeg.com slash community and you uh, leave a comment and you, uh, if you want, you can private message me there and I will send you the book, uh, Mary Beth's book, because this is getting the word out about stories like yours is so important. So that people know that there is more, there is more than just not drinking or not using or just staying away from what you used to do. And that's, that is the message that, uh, you know, I, I would love to get out there and that's really where untapped keg started. So, um, go untapped slash media while you're there, you can leave an affirmation on the site and then that will be, included in the show. So at the start of every show, somebody in the community, their affirmation that they recorded, or you can just type one out and I'll read it for you at the beginning. The affirmation that you use will be used in the episode. And uh, I'm really excited. And untappedkeg.com slash community, absolutely go there. Like we're building something special. It's just people there looking to grow. And there's no right way to growth. There's just your way. That's the most important thing. There's so many different ways, so many different layers to getting to a point where you're in the kitchen cooking eggs and you just start to start to dance a little bit and you are out on the nature trail and you just look up and you this tree that has been trying to survive for 60 years is just one of the most beautiful things that you've seen. Or, you know, your kids come running in and you just start to tear up because of the life that you have helped to give them, the life you helped to create for them. And uh, that is really where the little things in life are. So you can get there. So find us Untap Keg on all social media platforms, but go to untappedkeg.com slash community and let's grow together. Let's try to be better tomorrow than we were today. Thank you, everybody. I love you. Jake Yoder is a personal coach and motivational speaker who specializes in helping others in the sober community transform self-limiting patterns that linger after addiction so that you can address the root cause of your drinking and truly thrive in sobriety. His own journey of long-term recovery from marijuana and alcohol led him to become the founder of Natural Highs Recovery, a coaching program that uses holistic health and mindfulness to help you cultivate peace, find purpose, and create a sober life you love. To learn more about the six pillars of the Natural Highs Coaching Program, book a free call with Jake. Both one-on-one -on -one and group coaching options are available, and even one free call can send you well on your way to creating the life you got sober for. Check the link in the description below. 